Today, we say enough. Even war has ruled. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Médecins Sans Frontières was formed in 1971 to provide medical aid to people in need in often life-threatening situations. From the forced transfer of the population in Ethiopia in the 1980s to the genocide of Rwandan Tutsi in the 1990s, our staff have been eyewitnesses to countless abuses. They've seen the consequences of political power games on people's lives and sometimes the deadly inaction of the international community. These situations were often complex and highly charged, so speaking out could pose a danger for everyone involved. It meant taking a risk. So what led MSF to speak out as a medical humanitarian organisation? Every crisis is different, and so speaking out can't be reduced to a set of guidelines. To reflect this complexity, MSF created the Speaking Out Case Studies series. This project by MSF International is written and directed by Laurence Binet and focuses on crises in which speaking out raised dilemmas for MSF. Dilemmas that sometimes led to controversies. My name is Nick Owen and I'm from MSF. In this series, we're going to be looking in-depth at the two wars in Chechnya between 1994 and 2004. The first war of independence with the Russian Federation starts in 1994 and runs for two years. Then, in 1999, when the country and its people are still struggling to recover, the Russian authorities start bombing Chechnya again. Through these tough years in the North Caucasus, MSF staff work hard to provide food and medical aid to thousands of people inside Chechnya and to Chechen refugees in the surrounding republics. Over nine episodes, we're going to be focusing on these conflicts in Chechnya, wars that raise many questions for MSF on when and how the organisation should speak out publicly about the war crimes its staff witness and the chilling effects of the politics of terror on the Chechen people. Through MSF press releases, internal reports, speeches and news articles of the time, as well as eyewitness testimonies from MSF staff, we'll find out what worked and what caused disagreement. We'll examine the challenges MSF faced when access to those in need is repeatedly blocked by the Russian authorities, forcing international staff to operate and train Caucasus teams at a distance. And later, when staff members are kidnapped, MSF is confronted with a terrible dilemma, whether to raise a voice or lay low until their colleagues are released. In what many of the most experienced MSF staff view as the most violent warfare they've ever witnessed, these questions and dilemmas lead to reflection, debate and controversy within the organisation and beyond. This is Speaking Out, War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994 to 2004, a podcast by MSF. Episode 1, The First War in Chechnya. To understand the relationship between Chechnya and its northern neighbours, Russia, we must go back to the 1800s. Chechnya lies in eastern Europe, near the Caspian Sea, in a region called the North Caucasus. Its people are predominantly Muslim. 
1859, the country has been resisting colonization for over a century when it's annexed by Russia. It later becomes part of the Soviet Union, and then in 1936, it becomes a republic together with its eastern neighbour, Ingushetia. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin disbands the republic just before the end of World War II, accusing the Chechens of collaborating with the Nazis. He orders their deportation en masse to Central Asia, where many people die from the inhumane conditions of the deportation and the harshness of life there. In the mid-50s, the survivors are politically reintegrated and return to their country, where they settle alongside the Russians and Ukrainians who have moved into the region. The Chechen Ingush Republic is re-established. By 1990, the USSR has been dismantled and Russia is now known as the Russian Federation. Its president, Boris Yeltsin, tells the Federation's smaller states that they can, quote, take as much independence as they can swallow. In Chechnya, the elected president, Jafar Dudaev, takes Yeltsin at his word, and on the 1st of November 1991, he proclaims his country's independence. A week later, the Russian government in Moscow declares this self-proclamation illegal and sends in troops. Ingushetia calls a referendum and separates from Chechnya. The following January, Chechen President Jafar Dudaev introduces a Chechen constitution after refusing to sign Chechnya's membership treaty with the Russian Federation. Russia imposes an economic embargo, but still the Chechen leader continues with his attempts to separate from Moscow. In 1993, Dudaev dissolves the Chechen parliament, which is in the hands of a local pro-Russian opposition group, and gives himself full powers. By the middle of 1994, tensions are escalating fast in Chechnya. When Russian loyalist troops attempt to overthrow Dudaev's regime, the Chechen president declares a state of emergency. Fighting breaks out and the Russian forces soon pull back but their withdrawal is short-lived. On the 11th of December 1994, 25,000 Russian soldiers cross into Chechnya to, quote, disarm the conflicting parties. An article in the French daily Le Monde describes groups of advancing tanks and helicopters shooting at a village. It then explains how the war that follows is presented by the Russian government as a police operation conducted on Federation soil. The Russian media has been circulating biased information for months, presenting the small Chechen Republic, which declared its independence three years ago, as a hotbed of international terrorism and militant Islamism, and where the local Russian population is persecuted. The media has highlighted the emergence of a local opposition that denounces the dictatorship of the Chechen president, Zhofadudeev. It is true that this opposition does exist, but its financial, political and military backing from the Kremlin has discredited it in most Chechens' eyes. Nine days later, the first Russian bombs fall on Grozny city centre, forcing most of the capital's 350,000 inhabitants to flee for their lives. The federal forces destroy whole towns and villages, forcing thousands of people to leave their homes. At first, the Russians deny humanitarian organisations and international journalists access to the region, and so the rest of the world doesn't witness these civilian bombings. But as more NGOs and journalists make their way to the North Caucasus, this soon begins to change. At the time in 1994, MSF has a few programmes running in the region. 
MSF France has a rear base in a southern Russian city called Pietigorsk on the Caucasian border and is supplying four hospitals in the Chechen capital of Grozny with medicines and medical supplies. They also have a programme for Ingush refugees in Ingushetia who've been driven out of a disputed territory in North Ossetia called Prigorodny. Meanwhile, MSF Belgium has been working for a number of years in the nearby republics of Armenia and Azerbaijan and with homeless people in Moscow. But very few in the organisation have in-depth knowledge of the situation and politics of Chechnya. The MSF Belgium coordinator is based in Moscow. We had their words voiced up. We'd never been there before and we didn't know the region at all. I was the coordinator for the Moscow programme. We were running projects for the homeless and carrying out exploratory missions that would eventually lead to tuberculosis projects in Russian prisons. It had nothing to do with the Caucasus. The director of operations called us, saying the war had been going on for 20 days, and the Belgian team still had not managed to intervene. So we had to go there ourselves. The team load up cars and drive for five days, 2,500 kilometres south to the Chechen border. The Russian driver is too scared to cross into Chechnya, but in the end, a Russian interpreter agrees to go, and so the MSF coordinator crosses with two MSF Belgium colleagues and the Russian interpreter. We waited for the sky to cloud over, as the Russians bombed less then, and crossed into Chechnya, with no means of communication on board. We just made one call to say we were going in. We only had a few supplies of the car, hardly anything. We donated supplies and medicines and then started introducing ourselves and collecting information. (laughs) They were surprised to see us. They'd seen no one else. With hindsight, I admit we were ill-prepared. We knew nothing about the Chechen context and the tradition of kidnapping. We underestimated the intensity and the nature of the bombing. We had no security guarantees whatsoever. We travelled around Chechnya for two or three days... We had to negotiate with the Ministry of Interior's troops all the time. We tried to take the road to Grozny, but the bombing forced us back. In January 1995, with just eight members of staff on the ground, the Médecins Sans Frontières teams managed to supply hospitals with medicines and medical materials. They also operate on the wounded and negotiate, and sometimes secure, the evacuation of patients during village bombing raids in Chechnya and the neighbouring republics but the Russian forces are trying to make it as difficult as they can for MSF to access patients through bomb threats and refusing them access to distribute humanitarian assistance. Three weeks later, Russian troops reach Grozny and take over the presidential palace. MSF estimates that by now around 80,000 refugees have fled eastwards into neighbouring Dagestan. The programme manager for MSF Belgium, Dr Alain Deveau, remembers his shock at entering Grozny for the first time. The city centre itself was totally ravaged. Russian soldiers were moving around the areas in tanks, wearing hoods and waving a banner with a dead man's head. The army was mostly made up of delinquents and ruffians. They were still shooting. Everything had been flattened, apart from a few buildings. The presidential palace had completely collapsed. And it was weird seeing the bullet-ridden concrete, with its reinforcement bars, all jagged and bent. We wondered where the people were. They were in basements under the buildings. So we went down to find them, leaving the car behind as there were mines. They'd got themselves organised. 
with beds and kitchens set up in the dark, and just a candle here and there. When the fighting died down, they went out to collect snow, to melt it. They ripped up park benches for wood, along with anything else they could find for heating and keeping the cooking fires going. I remember evacuating an old, dying woman. She needed treatment for her heart and respiratory problems. Meanwhile, a small team from MSF France also manages to get into Chechnya and set up a distribution centre where the section had run a cholera programme last summer. They also managed to set up a centre in Grozny and, like Alain, are shocked at the devastation there. From the start of the war in 1994, MSF France and Belgium volunteers in Chechnya are repeatedly feeding the press with information on the rapidly deteriorating conditions and the Russians' refusal to let them into many areas of the country. In January 1995, an article in the French newspaper Le Parisien features an interview with MSF France's medical advisor for the ex-USSR. She accuses the Russians of conducting a, quote, campaign of terror over the Chechen population. In one town centre where thousands of refugees have fled the capital are sheltering, she says she witnessed the marketplace being deliberately targeted by a Russian plane. On arrival in Grozny, there were again two enormous bomb craters where the markets used to be at the junctions of the city's main roads. All the city's hospitals had been destroyed because they'd become targets like the others. Only the areas to the northeast of Grozny are spared by the Russian planes. They're held by the opposition to President Dadaev, which has been allied with and armed by Moscow for years. But in the rest of the country, it's a scorched earth policy, just like in Afghanistan. The Russians respect absolutely nothing, neither the Geneva Conventions nor the wounded. They don't let anyone through to receive care. They evacuate their own victims to the headquarters in Mozdok, North Ossetia, where they leave the Chechens to die. It's pure butchery. MSF Belgium sets up a surgical unit in Vedjeno, a town under Chechen rebel control just 60 kilometres south of the capital. Since fighting broke out in December, the population of Vedjeno has doubled because it's on the evacuation route south out of Chechnya. The project coordinator for MSF Belgium in Chechnya remembers the conditions in the hospital. Their words have been voiced up. Virginia was seven kilometres away from the front line. So the fighting was intense. The pressure was huge. I didn't know anything about the context of war, bombs, amputations or serious wounds. I ended up being project coordinator, even though this wasn't planned at all. I wasn't experienced enough and it was really tough. In Moscow, the coordinator had warned the Russians that we had a team in Virginia and they couldn't pretend that they didn't know. So we hoped they wouldn't bomb us directly, but they still tried to intimidate us. They dropped their bombs less than a kilometre away from our house. At one point, we were outside the hospital and we saw them coming. Some journalists saw Russian helicopters dropping right down to the level of houses and throwing grenades through the windows. They also saw them firing rounds into fields where children played. The MiG-22 bombers were particularly destructive. There were so many wounded... One of the worst nights we had, children blown apart, some hideous wounds. I don't remember how many days we spent in the operating theatre, non-stop. We were amputating every day. Fighters came in for treatment too, and we really struggled to keep weapons out of the hospital. The Russian troops were malnourished and hungry, 
We treated a Russian soldier who'd injected salt water into his feet to avoid going back to the front. Again, MSF speaks out about the dire conditions the Chechens are having to endure. In March alone, the Belgian and French sections issue several press releases, along with a report describing the displaced population's plight and the health situation in Grozny. During a press conference on the 30th, MSF Belgian volunteers, who've recently returned from Chechnya, tell how Russia's indiscriminate bombing is leaving hundreds of victims. A press release from MSF France the same day echoes their colleagues' concern. The fate of these displaced lurches from bad to worse. Many places have already been inundated by waves of people, dating from the start of the war. Living conditions are extremely difficult, with no water, electricity or heating. These people have been living through four months of conflict and are in critical need of medical and sanitation assistance. But humanitarian aid, already obstructed by the Russians from reaching areas in Chechen rebel hands, is further crippled by the indiscriminate bombing along the country's major roads. The few humanitarian organisations present in the country are thus completely unable to provide these displaced with the aid they need to survive. As the bombing raids intensify in southern Chechnya in May 1995, MSF Belgium's team leave the Vegeno Operating Theatre to Chechen doctors and go to the nearby town of Maketie to help the hospital's surgical team there. In a press release on the 24th of May, the Belgians make a plea to the Russian army. As the front line edges closer to Maketie, the hospital, like Chechen hospitals elsewhere, could become a target for bombs. Médecins Sans Frontières thus appeals to the Russian troops to spare the town's medical facilities and their surroundings. They have been clearly marked with the organisation's logo. The press release also includes an extract from one of the last messages sent by the Maketie team about a Russian military fighter jet attack. MIG attacks this morning, from 07.15 through to midday. A bomb fell 300 metres away from the hospital. Some windows were shattered. The hospital is badly positioned, but we don't have any choice. The patients have been taken to the basements. No more general hospital activities for the moment. Just haven't got the time. It's a similar and equally bleak story at Chateau Hospital, to the west, where MSF France is working. By early June, the situation in southern Chechnya comes to a head. In a joint press release, the French and Belgian sections outline the latest developments and the consequences for the people trapped in these two towns. Declared persona non grata in the region of Chateau and Marchetti, MSF is forced to withdraw from southern Chechnya. Since the 11th of May, the Chateau region has been brought to its knees by the sharp escalation in widespread and indiscriminate bombing raids conducted by the Russian armed forces. Médecins Sans Frontières' medical surgical team has spent the last week operating on the wounded in a basement, in an operating theatre cobbled together by the team. Another team was operating in the neighbouring village of Marchetti and has also been obliged to withdraw. All transportation of aid to the south has been blocked since the 23rd of May. General Kulikov, the head of the armed forces in the Ministry of the Interior, in charge of operations in Chechnya, met with an MSF representative in Grozny this morning. He posed an ultimatum. All MSF teams had to be out of Chatoy and Marchetti by 1800 tonight. He made it clear that no passage would be accorded thereafter. 
After months of intense bombing raids, a military agreement is signed between the Russian forces and the Chechen separatists on the 30th of July, and refugees start returning to Grozny. MSF supports the remaining health facilities in the capital that have been largely destroyed during the war. During consultations, many patients describe the violence they've experienced to MSF volunteers. The MSF France analyst François Jean comes to the Caucasus in 1995 to assess the situation using his network of contacts with Chechen stakeholders and European researchers and activists. His analysis and historical perspective is key for the team's understanding of the context in which they're working in Chechnya. One of his suggestions is that they collect information from the patients on the circumstances in which their wounds were inflicted and then disseminate it. MSF Belgium's coordinator in Moscow remembers the impact François Jean had. Again, their words are voiced up. We only really developed our reading of Chechnya during François Jean's visit. He'd seen the Chechen war coming. It's the only time I saw someone in MSF anticipate a war through strategic insight and positioning. In Russia, we were reading the papers, but we didn't have the historical overview of Chechnya that François was providing in Paris. We paid for this in the end, because it took us some time to understand what we were actually dealing with. François Jean passed away in 1999. Next time, while the Russian president talks publicly about a peace plan, his forces carry out a ruthless bombing campaign on rebel-held villages in southern Chechnya. MSF sections are united in wanting to speak out about what their staff witnessed before being forced out of the region, but there's vigorous debate on how best to draw attention to the atrocities. I was therefore highly aware of the insecurity and the fears of the teams. We were really careful and negotiated every word. We discussed what they were happy about and what they were not. Eventually, the warring parties sign a peace plan but it isn't long before Russian forces are back on Chechen soil in what they term an anti-terrorist operation. This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceovers are by Lucy Dearlove and Mark Fairclough. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Alain Duvaux. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.